Today, would you say that you are currently living the life that Christ died to give you? Today, are you currently living the life that Christ died to give you? My hope is that you would say yes, and like you would just, it would just rev up in you, like wow, yes, I'm doing that today. But, but my thought is, and I, my belief is, that some of us come in here today and we're like, I just don't know. Like, or maybe some of us said, you know what, there was a time in my life where I was doing that, but I kind of lost my way in that. I want that back. And my hope today, and, and we're going to see this in James, my hope is today would maybe be a jump start for your spirit. To kind of put you back right where God wants you to be, right where you want you to be. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, you're here with us. We have a promise in the scriptures that, that you're here with us. When two or more are gathered in your name, that you are, you are with them. You are with us today. Lord God, I pray that you would just be with someone in here who has, who has veiled eyes. That they just can't see your goodness like they want to. They just can't see how the next level of obedience will set their heart in motion, will set their life in motion. Father, I pray that you would just free everyone who is, is hearing this message, that you just free us so that we could say with confidence that we're living the life that you died to give us. And we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible, please open it up to James 4. James 4. Um, just so you know, we're actually, there's this message in James. There's going to be one more message in James. Then we're going to get into our Christmas series that's called Simply Christmas. And we're going to look at some of the names from, uh, specifically from Matthew 1 and 2, some of the names that define the character and the person and the deity of Jesus Christ. So that's really going to be the point of this Christmas, um, of that series. And then after the Christmas series, like I said, which starts in two Sundays from today, and then after that one is over, we're going to tidy up the James series, the Authentic series, and I think there's going to be like two messages left in that. Um, it, just off the top of my head, I think there's two messages left in that afterward. We're going to jump into a series after the first of the year called Selfie, talking about the image that God created us in and the image that you have and maybe the false image that you think you have. So uh, I look forward to that. That's going to be exciting. That's going to be really, really good. Now, uh, James chapter 4, verse 13. Now, if you're an overachiever, you can also hold your place in your Bible to Matthew 6. If you have a device, I have no idea how you're going to do this, okay? I have no clue how you can kind of keep both those things open. But if you have a Bible, good old-fashioned, um, you know, good old-fashioned Bible, then you can do that. Matthew 6, we're going to be in a couple different texts there. But then specifically, main text, of course, is James as we're in our, our authentic series where we're seeing where faith and real life meet. Now, there's kind of a transition in the text here, and it's really, really interesting. Um, the, the transition, and it seems very subtle, but whenever I was studying this, there seemed to be a transition even in the way that James was responding to the scattered believers around uh, the area of Jerusalem, Judea, and, and those areas that this original, this letter would originally have been sent to. And the thing that was really, really interesting about this is they were kind of, they were, they were saying that they were Christians, but they were living a life different than that. 
They were actually going through and they would say, yeah, 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 I am a Christian, but they lived like, he, like they, were, they were Christians, and they would say, yeah, I believe in God, but they were living like he didn't exist. They were, in essence, practical atheists. Practical atheists. So they were saying, oh, I, I believe God, but then they were living like God did not exist. And that's really the, the main transition that happens in the text over this week and then the following week um, that you'll see next week. But something that, that is interesting with this is they're kind of treating um, they're kind of treating the, the Christian walk like a spiritual smorgasbord. Does anyone in here like smorgasbords? Anyone? Raise your hand. It's cool. I'm not going to pick on you. Smorgasbords. Put them up. Loud and proud. Everybody. Put them up if you have them. You like smorgasbords. Some of you are a little sheepish about smorgasbords. I don't know why you would be that way. But some of you are like, you know, I love smorgasbords. I love it. You can go into a smorgasbord and you can eat whatever you want. Like if you go to Golden Corral, which I call the Golden Trough, but that's for other reasons. Now, you go into Golden Corral and like you you sit down and you're supposed to work from left to right. You go through through the salad and all the, all that stuff, and it looks really, really good, and it's green and vibrant, but, but typically if I go to a smorgasbord, I kind of not feeling that stuff, so I just kind of land all the way to the right, which is actually the dessert aisle, and uh, I kind of I dabble in the other areas, but then you can't wait to get to the dessert, but you know they have this thing, a Golden Corral, that has changed the way that I look at all smorgasbords, and certainly Golden Corral, and you know what it is? They have the chocolate fountain. Right? Some of you love the chocolate fountain, but let me tell you, if you've ever seen a kid with snot fingers running his hand into the chocolate fountain, your perception on the chocolate fountain changes instantly. Am I right? And all of a sudden, you're like, I don't like the chocolate fountain anymore. I don't like it. You see, the thing that we love about smorgasbords, you go in, you can kind of dabble, and you can kind of pick and choose whatever you want, and they have a million different varieties of everything that you choose from. But when it comes to a relationship with Jesus Christ, a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, it's all or nothing. You can't pick and choose, well, oh, I like this part, and oh, I I want the grace part, I want the grace part. You can't just like pick that part and say, yeah, I know that's true about my situation, but I don't necessarily like that. You can't go through and pick and choose and say, you know what, I I love God, but, but but I also love my finances. You just can't. Do that. You can't go through and say, you know what? I believe that God exists, but I'm not too crazy about the Jesus thing outside of church. Or you can't say, you know what? There was this time in my life many years ago that I gave my life to Christ and I meant it. And since that day, I've been living my life to satisfy all of my needs and to make myself happy ever since. What James would say in this text is, if you are doing that, you're not living the life that Jesus Christ died to give you. Of course, James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's the one, and we, we talked about this weeks ago, but you've probably forgotten. He's the one who didn't believe that Jesus was God. As a matter of fact, he was one of his first family members to kind of question Jesus. Oh, how could you be God? Really? You're God? You're making all these claims? And he was kind of embarrassed by what, by what Jesus was saying, and the rest of his family was kind of embarrassed. But then there was this thing that happened. James' whole life changed when he recognized and realized that Jesus was God after the resurrection because no one else could do that but God. So James goes through with a little context here. He's not not telling us and telling his audience to do something he's not already doing. But what he's pressing into us is, if you were to live the life that Christ died to give you, you can't live your life like a spiritual smorgasbord. Pick and choose what you want and how you feel 
and how to make yourself happy. James 4, verse 13. You see, even the way that, that he speaks at the beginning of this text is a little bit different. He says, now listen, before he would, the main transition say brothers or brothers and sisters, maybe your Bible says. He says, now listen. He's trying to reason with them. He's not trying to scold them. He loves them. And he says, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? He says in verse 14, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? He says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, instead, here's the better option. He says, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. He says, anyone who knows the right thing to do, but he doesn't do it, he sins. This is not just a sin of commission that I do something that violates God's law. He says, this is something that you know you ought to do. This is a sin of omission. That means, oh God, I should have engaged in this relationship. I should have pressed in a little bit more spiritually. I should have shared Christ with my neighbor. I should have shared Christ with my co-worker. I shouldn't have been so angry with my boss, but I just wanted to be angry with my boss. I should have invited Jesus in to be the, the, just the, the centerpiece of my marriage, but instead I made the marriage about my own happiness. He says, if you've done those things you have done things wrong so what he says by these series of questions he says now listen today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city spend a year here carry on business and make money see these are people that claim to know God but they're living like he doesn't exist they're practical atheists they're practical atheists they're just kind of going about their life, doing whatever they want to do. And he says in verse 14, he says, why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? He says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Then he gives a better option. What I'm going to kind of break this talk up into two different sections. And the first section is, I'll just call the consumption assumption. The consumption assumption. You see, these people had thought, well, I live my life. Sure, I, I know God, but now I'm just going to live my life to meet my own level of happiness, which is actually very narcissistic. And narcissism in and of itself means an excessive preoccupation with oneself. That means you only live to meet your needs. You don't care about the needs around you. You don't care about what Jesus says about you. You don't care about the change that, that Jesus is leading you to. This, this idea of narcissism is just an excessive, excessive, an excessive preoccupation with oneself. You can't see beyond yourself. And this is the consumption assumption they had lived their life with the assumption that it was all about them they were just going about their day today or tomorrow we will live and go to this city or that city spending your here carry on business and make money he says i am just going to do whatever it is that i want to do to meet my own level of happiness james with correction he says what is your life your life is a mist. He's not saying that your life is... That he's, James is not saying that your life is not important. He says your life is so important. 
But seize the day, Christian. Seize the day. Seize today. When we have this idea of narcissism, it's fed by operating under the assumption that all about life is about my own personal consumption. Narcissism, my definition, is fed by operating under the assumption that life is about our personal consumption. That means that every time you get around someone else, you're like a leech. You draw strength from them instead of add strength to them. That means when you look upon, when people look upon the church, when we look upon the church, they don't say, wow, what could I give to the local church? They say, what can I take from the local church? They don't look at Christ and say, wow, what can I do to forward the mission of Christ? Instead, they say, oh, Jesus, could you meet all my needs? Can you, can you do all of this? And they make their plans, but, and then ask Jesus to bless those plans. They don't, ask him, they, don't, they don't ask Jesus to get involved before they make their plans. They ask Him to bless them after they've made a mess of their life. That's what's talked about here. And this idea of narcissism, it's fed by operating under the assumption that all of life is about our personal consumption. That means relationally, that, that whether it's in a marriage, it's like as long as I'm getting what I want and meeting my own level of happiness, I'm good. But as soon as that's not, as soon as that's not met, I've got big issues. The thing happens spiritually, I just mentioned that. It happens relationally, and it even happens financially. We say, you know what, God, I know that you've entrusted with me this certain amount of finances, but it's about, it's, it's about using it to make my name great instead of the name of Jesus great and to meet our own happiness. And we can do all of those things. And narcissism is, is an evil thing because it puts us on the throne to be worshipped. And there's more. The consumption assumption is this. If I have better possessions, if you have a worship guide, there's some fill in the blanks here for you. The consumption assumption is this. If I have better possessions, then I'll be happy. We think better possessions. This is the reason why that some of you, some of you, not me, okay, I'm totally picking on you. This is the reason why some of you You had blankets in your house. You had quilts that your moms and grandmas made for you. But you thought it was a great idea to buy a Snuggie. And this is the reason why. Because you saw something better on TV. And you're like, are you kidding me? So now there's a blanket with arms. And how awesome is that? This is the reason why some of you bought a Snuggie. Which was not a good idea. Okay? It's not. Because I pick on you regularly about your Snuggie. Just burn it or something. But the idea of better possessions, that means that you're never happy. You're never content. You're always looking for something else to meet your own level of happiness and contentedness. And as the fads change, and as, as bell-bottom jeans come, come in and come out, you've got to have bell-bottom jeans. Or as skinny jeans come in and go out, you've got to have skinny jeans or a certain brand comes in and you've got to have that or or a, a device comes out like now there's a, an iPhone 6 plus 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 minus plus whatever the latest one is it's like I've got to have that I've got my iPhone 5 but that's just not enough because there's that other thing and now I've got to go to the Apple store and I've got to wait in this crazy line for a phone that I really don't need because the one I currently have is fulfilling all of my needs and so much more but now you go wait in line at the at the you know, at the, the Apple store for something that you do not need, it's because you're chasing your own happiness with possessions. 
Chasing your own level of happiness with possessions. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with having things, but there's a lot wrong when, when those things have you. There's a lot wrong with that. That's the reason why some of you ladies, you go into your home and all you see is what your house could be and you're not content with what your house is. That's why some of you, some of you men, you go out in, in, in your garage and you look at your tools and things and you say, oh man, I've, I've got all these things, but, and you know what, I've got this, but I could just have something a little bit better. And I, oh yeah, I've just got to have this, this, this latest and greatest toy. Like I was just walking through Depot the other day and I realized that I already have three drills, but they've got this other drill and it's lighter and a smaller battery. Right? And that's the reason why we're kind of getting caught up in this idea of I've got to make myself happy but we do that and say well it's just better possessions so it's just a bigger house or it's just a newer car it's just something else but there's always something else some of you it's through person or rather it's through peaceful circumstances and you say you know what as long as my life is peaceful i'm okay because I'm trying to use that to find my own level of happiness. So peaceful circumstances. But the problem is this. There's no margin for suffering in that. There's no margin for suffering. There's no, there's no margin for difficulty in marriage. There's no margin when things kind of go wrong with your kids. There's no margin for that. Because if you, if you think that you just have to fulfill your own happiness with peaceful circumstances... What you're going to find is you're never going to be content because there's always unrest somewhere. Lexi, peaceful circumstances, please. You're never going to be content. And this is the life that Jesus died to give you. This is the life that He died to give you. Contentedness in your own soul. So you're not chasing the carrot. So you're not looking for the, the next and latest and greatest things. And He says, you know what? There's going to be times in your life where there's no peace. But He is enough. He's enough. But if you're only happy when there's peaceful circumstances, you will never really be happy. Because there's always a government in unrest. There's always some political thing in unrest that you hear about. There's always some level of your family in unrest. There's always something in your marriage that's just not where you want it to be. There's always a kid who's just acting a fool, right? So if you long for all those things, you're going to be very disappointed. Very disappointed. Some of us, we look for thrilling experiences. And, and the way this plays out is if you're, if you're married, maybe this is your story. You've kind of, you know, you have the whole Camelot thing and, you know, you, you did the honeymoon and it was amazing and all of that. It was just fairy tale, right, ladies? It was just amazing. But then, since then, everything else has been a letdown. And you're looking for just the, the, the next greatest experience to try and hit that point again and again and again. That's why when you, if you go on a cruise and you're like, wow, this cruise is amazing, but I really want to go on an Alaskan cruise. Or I really, you know, I went out for like however much time, but I really wish I could go out for another week. Or, you know, you go to the beach, but like, oh, the beach is great, but I would just love to go to Hawaii. And you're always looking for a level of contentedness that you cannot have with thrilling experiences because there's always a greater experience to be had. There's always a greater experience to be had. 
And the promise that Jesus gives us of abundant life is, is better than that, than a vacation, a cruise, a hobby. Some of us are trying to meet our own happiness by having just the right relationships. And the way this works out in, in the business world is this. I want to align myself in such a way to where I get connected with somebody who they can take me to the next level. I want to align myself relationally, whether it's with my boss or my boss's boss, and now I'm just going to be happy if I just align myself with them so they can kind of take me to the next level on the ladder. And what you find out is, where does that stop? Does it stop with having the CEO's job? Is that where that stops? No, it doesn't. Because there's always a company that's bigger than yours. There's always somebody who has more time than you. The way this also works is just for married folks. The way this works, you say, you know what? If I have the right relationship... See, there's no margin for difficulty in marriage if, you're just, if you want the right relationships to be the foundation of your life. Because there's always, there's always going to be some friction. I'm not saying it's always difficult and always devastating, but, but there's always going to be friction. And if you live your life to meet your own level of happiness, you're going to be sadly, sadly disappointed if you try and do so with relationships. Teenagers, please listen. Single folk, please listen. There's not going to be a boyfriend or girlfriend who's going to be able to do for you what Jesus Christ has already promised to do. And if you, can, if you think to yourself, you know what, if I just had this boyfriend, this girlfriend, if I just had this or just had that, you're going to be sadly, sadly disappointed. Jesus Christ wants to be the cornerstone of, of your faith. He wants to be the centerpiece of your life. And you have to have Him be the basis of all of your relationships, right? This is true for everyone, is it not? This is one of the great promises of the gospel. But if you look for that in some sort of relationship, you're going to be sadly, sadly disappointed. And you're going to do things that you don't want to do. And you're going to live a life of regret because the things that you've done, because you put somebody else above Jesus. It's not a matter of having the right relationships. And some of us get caught up in the idea of the perfect appearance. The perfect appearance. So, you know, you just, whatever it is, whatever, whatever size of jeans you wear, you want the lower size. Whatever the, the scale says, you want 10 pounds lighter or 20 pounds lighter. Or whatever your skin tone is, then you have to buy a certain amount of makeup to change your skin tone from what you have to something else. It's the reason why you dye your hair. It's like you have a certain hair color that God gave you, but I don't like that hair color, so I'm going to dye this hair color because in that moment, I'm going to make myself happy. Is there anything wrong with any of the one of those things? Of course not. Of course not. But if you're looking for those things to, to hold your contentedness, it never stops and it never satisfies. It never does. The right appearances, appearances and I mean, good grief. It's new jeans, a spray tan, a, you know, whatever, whatever tone of spray tan. Please, Lord, let me never get a spray tan. Um, you know, and for guys, it's like the length of the beard. You know, like you look at stuff on social media and be like, wow, that beard is like girthy. I really want that beard. Or, wow, I don't want that beard. It looks really weird and something's growing in that beard. Whatever the story is. But like we're always chasing the, the carrot and it's just so tempting for us to kind of get into that of trying to meet our own level of, of contentedness. But in that, 
in that, I hope that you see, and I realize some of those things are kind of funny, but I hope that you see none of those things are fulfilling to the point to be able to give you the life that Christ died to give you. None of them. To chase our own happiness. When we chase our own happiness, it's very narcissistic, and what we're saying is, I'm living under the assumption that all of my life is about my consumption. It's about me. And the more I can pour into me, the happier I will be. James says this in verse 14. He starts the transition in the text. He says, why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. He says, why are you carrying on your business? You're like living like you're just going to live the rest of your life. Like like you've got nothing to worry about. Like you're just going to keep pressing on. You're going to be able to continue to do whatever it is that you want to do. And he scolds them. And perhaps he scolds some of us. And he says, what is your life? What is your life? He said, it's, it's a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, he said, here's the better option in verse 15. He says, instead, transitional word. You ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this and that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. He says, the way that it is, he said, you're living your life to meet your own level of happiness with your experiences and everything's about you. And he shows this, this better option. And then he says right at the, at the end of that text in verse 16, he says, and now you're bragging about it. Now you're bragging about everything that you've done. You're bragging about the platform that you think you've created. You're bragging about how great your marriage is compared to everyone else's. You're bragging about how good your kids look and how many opportunities your kids have and trying to say, because I've done all these things, I'm propping myself up. But what does he say in that text? He says, all such boasting is evil. He says, all such boasting is evil. Because when we live our life to find our own contentedness, to meet our own level of happiness, it is evil. Narcissism is evil. It puts us on the throne instead of Jesus Christ. It says that What's your life? You're a mist. He says, man, your life is so important. He's not saying that life is, it has no value. He says, no, your life has so much value. And understand that, that, that God holds the numbers of your days and you don't know what those are. So live the obedient life today because you're not promised tomorrow. You can't just live your life your way and then ask God to bless it. He says, you're a mist that appears for a little while. It's fragile. Psalm 39, verse 5 and 6 says this. To God, he says, You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. David is saying this to God. King David. I mean, so much money. So, so many opportunities. So much wealth. He could, he could adorn himself with whatever he wanted. Everyone and everything was at his disposal. And what does he say? He centers himself before God. And he centers us before the Lord. And he says to God, 
You have made my hand no longer than the width of my hand. You've made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. We're merely moving shadows and all of our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth not knowing who will spend it. Think about that. We heap up wealth not knowing who will spend it. That means that when, when we die and we've amassed this certain amount of wealth and this position and this power and this fame and this appearance, he says, when you've kind of built it all up on you and you built all this idea of wealth up on you and your 401k and your stocks and all of these things and you kind of built your whole platform, you've got all this money, he says, after you die, somebody else is going to be able to spend it. That's what he's saying. This is... This would probably be the richest person in the world at the time. And he says, understand. He's the one who's, who everyone else is kind of saying, wow, King David this, King David that, King David this, King David that. He's the one that other people would go see because of all the great stories of King David. And he says, you know what? He says, you can live your life and you can spend your life for you or you can spend your life for a better cause that being the cause of Christ. Now, because I, I, I want us to go here, we're going to see that James, or rather that Jesus also talks about what James mentions in Matthew 6. I want us to start in verse 25, and then we're going to jump into uh, verse 33. You may be asking yourself this question, but like, Okay, how can I do this? Because one of the things that, that many of you probably feel like you need to do it, but then you, as soon as you look at what James says, and he, he talks about if it's the Lord's will, those words, the Lord's will, is, is something that really, it, it's really life-giving, but it's very intimidating. It's very intimidating. And because I believe this to be true with all of my heart, we're going to go into Jesus' teachings because when we, when we think about the Lord's will, we think if we do anything that's not completely the Lord's will, then we're absolutely doing something wrong. So oftentimes our over-analysis leads to spiritual paralysis. Our over-analysis leads to spiritual paralysis. That means even the things that you know you're supposed to do, you don't do because you're afraid that you'll fail in it. That our over-analysis leads to spiritual paralysis, which is why Jesus, in his teachings, will become very, very clear and very helpful. Verse 25. This is what Jesus said. Matthew 6, verse 25. He says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food? And the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They did not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying could add a single hour to his life? Jesus says, I got this. He's like, when you, when you give your life to Jesus, he says, look around. There's this whole level of creation that's being, being sustained, not by your hand, by the Lord's hand. He says, why are you, don't worry. Don't worry. 
Don't need to, to hold on to everything and, and try and meet your own happiness. He says, no, 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 no. There's a level of, of contentedness that Jesus promised. He says, don't worry about those things. Look at the list of things. He says, about your life, what you'll eat or drink. About your body, that's personal appearance. What you wear, personal appearance. He says, is not life more valuable than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't worry. So you don't need to either. When you place your life into the hands of your loving and perfect Heavenly Father, that is the very best thing that you can do. It's the very best thing. So let's put some legs to this. Matthew 6, 33. Matthew 6, 33 says this. We're going to read 33 and 34. You may be saying, well, well what, what, what do I do? Where do I start? This is what Jesus says. But seek first His, that means the Father's kingdom, and His, the Father's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So you don't need to sweat it. Jesus says, I have this. He already died to give you the life that he promised. He already did that for you. So you may be saying, well, where do I start? Jesus made it very, very clear. He says, seek first his kingdom. That's the Father's kingdom and his righteousness. And he says, and all other things will be given unto you. See, all of a sudden what you realize is when you place your life in, into the hands of the loving Father, you care, you care less about where he sends you, and you don't even really care where in the situations that you're in, and really you don't even care about uh, of how peaceful some of those circumstances are because you realize that he's got you. And you realize that he has, he has more power than, than any of the evil of the world. In his hand. That's the better promise than trying to meet our own level of contentedness and happiness. As a matter of fact, still in Matthew 6, starting in verse 9, this is, what, this is what Jesus taught us to pray. This is what he taught us to pray. Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. He said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, and as we also should have, or rather, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If you want to know a good place to start, start right here. Start right here. Start with this prayer. This isn't just teaching us, well, make sure you pray in this way, in this way, in this way. Look at the fundamentals of this prayer. He says, our Father in heaven. Our Father. That means you can go to Him. He's a loving Father. He wants to hear the cries of His children. He wants you to spend time with Him. He wants you to draw near. And the promise is that He will draw near. That's the promise. And He says, our Father in heaven, how would be your name? Holy, holy, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, where should we start? Start right there. Russell Moore, in a great book called Onward, he said it this way. He said, the goal of history is not, after all, 
escape to heaven. But the merger of heaven and earth, when the dwelling place of God transforms the material creation. He says the new earth that awaits us is not merely an arena of worship, but also of righteousness. That's ethics. It's human rule. That's politics. Communion. That's society. That's loving others. And the glory and honor of the nations. That's culture. The cause of Christ is such that we are to give our life to Christ and then He uses our life to further His kingdom on earth. But He does it in some very specific ways that Russell Moore points out. He does it in certain ways of the ethics that we live by. The marital ethics, the relational ethics, the boundaries we create, creating a, a just a period of rest in your life. The ethics, a God-shaped morality of human rule, politics. Does that mean that Christians should be involved in, in the political process? Absolutely they should. Absolutely they should. God installs the political leaders, but we, we should be praying for and we should be electing those who have, the, the, who have God's heart in mind. Should we, we be involved in that process? Absolutely Christians shouldn't just run and hide and say, well, all political, uh, all politics are, are scandalous and everything else. We have, to be in, we have to be people who are praying for and electing people who believe the same thing we believe, who have a God-shaped morality and placing those people into positions of authority over us. God places those people in authority over us. God's idea, not ours. So human rule, communion. His kingdom come is going to be perfection. He is going to be doing... All of these things are going to be happening in eternity in heaven. But all of these things are supposed to be shaping our reality now. Shaping our reality now. These are the things that Christians should be passionate about. Not militant about, passionate about. Speaking the truth in love and engaging in all of these venues that you see on the screen. Communion, society, loving our neighbor as ourself. That's very clear. If you add anything to that, it makes it muddy. That's very clear. The last one is the glory and honor of the nations. That means shaping our culture around us. Shaping our culture around us. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what happened in the New Testament. When, when the Christians came to town, it changed, it changed the landscape of the culture. When Jesus went to Athens and he preached the good news of Athens, it changed the whole culture. And the reason why, that, that this is why we're not seeing a transformation of the culture in our society is because we are actually living Christians. I put myself, I, I believe in so many ways, I, I can be a practical atheist. I'm not saying that I'm better than you. I'm saying we're all on the same, we're all on the same page. We're all in need of God's grace, every single one of us. But we all live in some way or another as practical atheists. We say, we, we proclaim God and all of that, but yet in some areas of our life we live like He doesn't exist. And even what you see on the screen right now, the way you do this is you find excuses not to be engaged in these areas. But in the promise of Jesus in Matthew 6, He says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's already that way in heaven. 
Christians are supposed to be infiltrating the world around us, bringing his kingdom-mindedness to earth so they would receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus. What happens when a person forgets about God? What happens? I'll make it very clear. This I taught about last week. James 3.16 says this, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, which is narcissism, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Same, same idea, different question. What happens when a family forgets about God? Relational breakdown, disorder, and every evil practice. What happens if a marriage is not built on the foundation of Christ? And it's, you, you, you have a marriage that's trying to meet your own level of happiness. What happens? Well, it's pretty clear. James said it. You'll find disorder in every evil practice. What happens if, if we have elected officials who walk away from God? What happens? What are you going to find? Tell me. Disorder in every evil practice. What happens if we appoint people to the highest court of our land who don't have a biblical a worldview and don't have the mindset of, that's been informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, what happens? Disorder and every evil practice. We are where we are as a society because Christians weren't where they were supposed to be. We are, we are as a society, as a nation, as a people, because Christians weren't where they were supposed to be. And Christians should have been bringing in the kingdom mindset, saying Jesus Christ is the king, and bringing all of those principles, the ones that Jesus lived and the one that Jesus taught, to earth, shaping all of the things that I mentioned for Muscle Moore's book. See, I think one of the underlying themes in this is this. The worst thing to happen in life is not death. The worst thing in life is not death. Young people, this seems so, so kind of scary to think about this, but listen to this. The worst thing in life is not death. The worst thing in life is meaninglessness. We're all going to die. The worst thing is not death. It's meaninglessness. And Jesus died to give us a life that's abundant, that's full. A full life, like a gentleman by the name of Graham Staines, who was a missionary. He was from Australia, but he was a missionary to India. He served on the mission field for 30 years. And January 23rd, 1999, he had kissed his wife, Gladys, goodbye, and his daughter, goodbye, and he took his two sons, and they went into, they were in the remote areas of the village in India. And Graham took his, his boys, and they had done ministry all day long, and then they went back, and they were going to spend the night in their vehicle. So he, they got in their vehicle, shut the doors, ready to go to bed. He did what he always did. Surely prayed with his kids, his two boys. And prayed, and they went to sleep. And about midnight that night, some tribesmen came in, and they burned that vehicle down. Graham Staines died a martyr's death. His two sons, 
his only sons, died a martyr's death. You see, I realize that story sounds kind of sad, but Graham Staines was a hero. Not because of the way he died, but because of the way he lived. He had spent 30 years investing in other people. And let me tell you something, Christian. You will never regret an investment that you have made, a kingdom investment that you have made into someone else. Narcissism says, feed me and I'll, be, I'll meet my own happiness. Jesus says, you give your life to him and you're going to find a whole other level of abundant life because you didn't spend your life on you. You spent your life pursuing his heart and pursuing the heart of those that he loves. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. 